the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Today, we welcome Josh Rhodes, founder of Crypto Y'all, to the show. He's a full-time crypto investor, enthusiast, and business owner. Josh got his start as a real estate investor and marketing agency owner before discovering the power of crypto as a wealth-building asset. Now he helps the crypto curious safely understand how they can invest in the greatest financial technology in history. Josh, welcome to the show. Man, honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and did I pronounce it right, crypto, y'all? Is that Yeah, when you're not from the South, it doesn't roll off the tongue, but yeah, crypto, y'all. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we were chatting a little bit before we hit the record button. And the one thing I want to tell the audience is we've done a couple of shows on crypto. Uh, when Paul and I used to do the show we did together, we did an episode where we talked about crypto 101. I had another friend of mine uh, that helped me and, and, and we did a whole episode on blockchain and focused on crypto. And I think in the past, we really focused on the, the underpinning technology of crypto, which I think we've, we've overdone now at this point. We could put that aside. Today, I think what I love about your background is you're going to be able to bring us the basics and your expert advice in crypto when it comes to investing, looking at crypto through that investing lens. So thank you for coming on the show today. Sure, you bet. Yeah, and, and Josh, let it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Yes. So grew up in Alabama, live here, uh, family man, husband, dad, uh, business owner, but grew up pretty much one generation removed from extreme poverty. Um, you know, I, I always like to tell the story, like my grandmother made spaghetti sauce with ketchup a lot of times because she couldn't afford produce and ragu in a jar. And so that's just kind of the, 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 you know, I was the first person to ever go to college in my line. Um, and we just, I played baseball in college and it just kind of like got me to the next level, if you will, the next gate of development. And not that college is any answer to anybody's problems. It's, it's got its vices, but um, that's just kind of where I'm from. Um, grew up in the country, rural uh, I, I don't have an Ivy League education. Uh, no one in my family did. But um, when I got out of college, I read this crazy book by this crazy guy named Robert Kiyosaki called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it changed the way I look at the world. And uh, my dad um, came home from Vietnam and started a lumber sales business and basically kept me out of extreme poverty and because he was a business owner and he worked his tail off and did an awesome job and made me rich in confidence. Uh, but we didn't have this financial freedom um, upbringing. And so when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, my, you know, kind of the, the governor uh, of the of the engine on my brain was blown off and I was able to actually see the world of wealth and what's possible. So. I got into, you know, real estate investing and starting my own businesses. And um, I mean, I was putting a for sale sign in the yard 
on the day that Bear Stearns went under in 2008. Like it was nasty. I've lived through the, you know, that housing crisis. And uh, I I discovered uh, crypto about six years ago. And I remember when I first got into it, I was like, wait a second. Like, yeah, most people get into it because they see some kind of FOMO speculation post and they want to get in on the, the riches as well. And I'm the same way. Uh, just like everybody else listening to this podcast. So I bought in, but I've I've gone up and down the market a couple of bear cycles now and um, bears and bulls, and I've made a lot of money. But the thing that, the thing that really uh, hit home for me was, wow, this is an asset class. And it's not just an asset class, but it's the highest performing asset class in terms of lifespan in history. And so... I just fell in love with the velocity of crypto investing. Um, I, I fell in love with the volatility of it. and But most of all, I fell in love with the technological and uh, innovation of it all and just how it's going to be part of our everyday life, you know, social fabric, commercial fabric of, of life. So that's just a quick background. Obviously, we can dive into wherever you want to go. Yeah, no, that was great. And a couple of things I wanted to point out. Yeah, I, uh, your D1 baseball career, I do want to ask you a couple of questions about that yeah. towards the end of the podcast. Yeah. Um, the, and when you mentioned Robert Kiyosaki, I'm looking at my bookshelf. I got the cash flow quadrant Yes, up on my shelf. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He did a real estate book, which I'm not, I, I'm blanking on the title, but I'm also a big fan. I was, um, you know, I, I think too. Bitcoin and precious metals as well. Which one? Does he have a book on that now? No, he's just a big Bitcoin and precious metals investor as well. Ah, okay. Okay. I have not been following him as closely over the past several years. I, yeah. I, my, my, my influences has been Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's been a little bit Robert Kiyosaki early on uh, and a little bit of history and that people who listen to the show will know this. The reason why I gravitated towards Dave Ramsey so much at the beginning and I kind of stuck with him as kind of that, that guidepost was he was one of the few uh, financial experts out there, personalities that would resoundingly endorse you paying off your mortgage. Yeah. Which I've done. We've done that a number of years ago as a household, um, you know, and uh, th that could be a whole other episode about pulling money out and putting it into different investments. And I can make more money if I pull it out of the house and all these kind of things. And and that's something that's always kind of been um, a topic on the show. Uh, but for me, anecdotally, it's worked well in terms of I like just having a paid off house. I put it on the side. Now I can concentrate on my other outside of real estate investing kind of thing, you know. So but um, but yeah, I was a big Robert Kiyosaki fan as well. And I can relate with the college piece. I, I, I the part that I want to relate to is I was the first of the generation in my family that went to college, mm. right? Which was cool, right? And I, I'm thankful and grateful that my family and my father was very, my father was very domineering about, you're going to finish these four years or get the heck out of my house kind of yeah. attitude. And I, and I think he did it with love and purpose behind it, if that sure. makes sense, right? Because yeah. I think I might've mentioned half-heartedly after like two semesters, hey, I might take a, a break from college. And he's like, oh, you could. Yeah, I guess you could, but you're not living here if you're taking yeah. that break, you know. So he was. So that's, this is all probably for another podcast. And uh, but let's just jump right in, right? So I think what we want to start with right now is 
what is what is your def you know what is the definition of crypto and i don't want to get into the the nuts and bolts technical of it but from when people talk about crypto they're talking at those backyard barbecues what is it really about in terms of currency and and when you how you look at it through an investment lens well again in order to, i'll dodge the techno the techno mumbo jumbo and just kind of dive into the philosophy or the philosophical belief behind it which Perfect. is we want to be self-sovereign we want to be self-reliant we as in crypto investors we want to own property we believe in freedom of speech and freedom of property rights and the way to achieve that um in our opinion is through this awesome decentralization or democratization of assets and uh, specifically having peer-to-peer -peer money systems that do not require a third party or an intermediary to play referee, you know, between transactions. And that, I would say that's probably the core, like bottom, bottom line at the end of the day, um, we want a, a money system, money system or an asset class. You know, it's not cryptocurrency is kind of deceiving in the way that it has the word currency in it. Like, yes, there are monetary systems and currencies that are built on blockchain, Web3, whatever, whatever um, phrase you want to throw at it. But ultimately, most of them are basically tech companies. It's the way you need like it, it's almost like a, just a a conglomeration of NASDAQ companies, um, except for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is kind of the set apart asset class. Uh, everything else is crypto. And I think all of my Bitcoin maximalists listen to this will appreciate me uh, making that qualifier. But uh, yeah, ultimately it's about us having control. You know, think about this. Think about the billions of people globally um, who are in poverty because they just don't have access to a financial system at all. And for us in America, that sounds alien. It's just ridiculous. You, you can trip over Wells Fargo in America. You know, it's easy to get financial services of some kind, at least on a minimal level. But there are billions of people around the world, especially in the emerging markets, that don't have that luxury. Well, Bitcoin, just Bitcoin. We can talk about all the other crypto stuff, but... Bitcoin alone will lift millions, if not billions, out of poverty just because if they can get their hands on a phone and Internet access, and for the most part, they, they are and they can, especially as uh, Internet access expands, um, they can own property. Bitcoin is basically digital real estate, digital property. And so then you start expounding on that idea and you start getting into other utilities that crypto and blockchain bring, bring about you know, in, in specific industries with specific use cases. And uh, maybe the, the thing I always like to say or ask myself is, well, is this crypto solving a problem that will save money for a business, save time for a business, uh, save time for a person or make money for a person? Uh, and if so, then we might have a utility or a use case on our hands that we can invest in, believe in, uh, put our chips in on and go from there. So, but philosophically, it's a, just a better form of financial systems than the traditional centralized system that we grew up in. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of good things I wanted to dig into there. Um, we, we had a 
someone on the show that had uh, Bitcoin locked in a hard drive. He lost his credentials, couldn't get to the Bitcoins. Yeah. Right? It's rendered useless. And it would. And if you listen back on that show, it was not a small amount of money. Um, the one thing that's interesting is, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about is, you know, we touched upon what, so when you talk about in your, and I guess this is for you in your eyes, is Bitcoin really the investable type in currency right now? Because I know there's other uh, crypto types and currency types and, and that are out. There was Dogecoin. There was all these other ones. Yep. Now, what's your view when it comes to investing? And maybe first tell us a little bit more about, in your eyes, what is Bitcoin? And then yep. how do you compare Bitcoin to these other currency products that are out there today? Yeah, Bitcoin, before thinking of it as a currency, you need to think of it as a, the largest computer network on the planet. It's the largest peer-to-peer -peer, uh, network on the planet that allows you to move um, almost limitless amounts of data or money energy um, to someone else, regardless of geographic borders, um, anywhere on the planet. And so that's, first and foremost, its characteristics. Obviously, Bitcoin, the actual coin, is the incentivization that originally Satoshi, the, uh, the, the originator of Bitcoin, used as incentive for the miners who are the people who run the computers, who own the computers and uphold the decentralized network so that there, there isn't a Federal Reserve or a central bank propping it up. So that's the idea uh, behind Bitcoin. Um, and when it comes to the rest of crypto, um, like I was saying, it's just really all about the use case and utility. But the, the way I think about like investing in it is the same way a real estate investor might consider single, single families versus multifamily apartment buildings versus a commercial car wash versus, um, you know, short term Airbnb rentals. Like there's all kinds of flavors of real estate. Well, there's all kinds of flavors of crypto as well. The same way with stock market. There's various sectors. Uh, there's various industries in the S&P 500. And so crypto is just very similar in that regard. It's a cousin to all of its, all the current asset classes that we're familiar with. Same, same with like insurance. There's universal, there's whole life, there's term life. There's always a different uh, flavor of the asset class once you lift the lid and really pay attention. And that's where the user, the listener needs to go, okay, what are my financial goals? What are, what's my ferociously specific desired outcome is what I tell all of my mastermind members. Like, let's start there because if you do not have a ferociously specific desired outcome, then you might invest in a meme coin that has absolutely no value uh, from a utility perspective, complete speculation, and it may never go up in value. Um, and all the while, you may maybe you should have bought some Ethereum instead. It, may, it would have served your, your, your purposes and your outcomes. Uh, so it kind of informs how to do research in crypto and how to approach your, your portfolio design uh, and so forth. So that, those are, I, I would say that's kind of how the reason why it matters and kind of the differences. Okay, cool. Yeah, and you touched upon uh, the the word mining. Is that related to crypto farming? Is that one in the same term? No, uh, a it's different. Yeah, traditionally mining would be you know having that hardware computer 
Like, like I, I personally do not do Bitcoin or any type of mining, but I have a lot of friends that do. You know, they've got four or five computer rigs in their attic with air conditioners and fans on them, keeping it uh, from overheating. And they're just mining fractional pieces of Bitcoin. They're actually supplying the energy. They're paying a power bill. Uh, and obviously they pay for the hardware up front, but, but they're upholding. They're part of that decentralized network. Well, those are what miners are. Crypto farming, yield farming, that's more a, a part of the, the decentralized financial space that emerged in around the, 20, the summer of 2020. We call it DeFi summer. And that's where we do, um, it's all virtual. It's, it's, it's like virtual mining, but it's, it's lending. It's providing liquidity to massive treasure, decentralized treasuries. And those treasuries then go earn money by lending uh, or creating income streams, et cetera. It's, it's kind of like being a part of a hedge fund. Um, and that hedge fund, though, is daily creating yield instead of hoping for one day some big payoff or payday like a private equity or a VC might. And so that decentralized financial ecosystem that you're deposited in or your capital is in uh, is earning a daily interest rate. And your wallet or your dashboard where you're plugged into that thing, you can see your earnings. Uh, and your annual percentage yields are dramatically higher than that of the S&P 500, for example. And so it's a really uh, brand new, uh, quote unquote, brand new uh, part of the financial decentralized financial system that I think is going to be more and more adopted uh, as the years go by and ultimately will replace a lot of people's full time income. Yeah, this is amazing because I never heard of that term. And I, I wrongly assumed that crypto farming was equal to crypto mining. So if I heard you correctly, and I, I pre, if we could just dig into this a little yeah. bit for the audience, the analogy I'm thinking of, and if I'm off base, you could correct me. Um, so people are investing into these, into, into these, you know, into this economy where they're, they're feeding dollars in and they're planting seeds of dollars that will hope that are kind of germinating. And then the farming aspect is how these economies are growing. Is that how, I mean, we just kind of, is there an analogy you could use that will tell our audience what crypto mining is kind of like? Yeah. So again, in the traditional sense, Bitcoin mining, I'll just use that up until the, um, 2020, the end of 2022, Ethereum mining was a thing as well, but they moved their protocol from proof of work to proof of stake. We can unpack that later if you want to, but there's no longer any Ethereum mining to be done. Um, but Bitcoin mining, yeah, that's basically just uh, in a very practical way. Let's say you and I both are Bitcoin miners. We're, we're retail investors. We've got a couple of mining rigs. It literally would look like a, you know, a desktop computer rig or something like that without the monitor necessarily. Uh, and, but you can plug it up into a monitor and, you know, obviously monitor your, your production level. But algorithmically, mathematically, that's what supports Bitcoin. There's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. 19 million or some odd Bitcoin have already been mined. There's a couple million left to be mined. But every four years, there's programmed into the system what we call the Bitcoin halving, which is where the circulating supply gets cut in half. So there's already a scarcity or a, a limited 
uh, inventory of Bitcoin that will ever be possessable, if that's a word. And then uh, every four years, it gets harder for the miners uh, to, to extract the ultimate amount of Bitcoin uh, as an incentive or as a payday. And so it continues to go up in price because there's supply shock. And so price continues to go up. If you look at any Bitcoin chart since 2009, it's up and to the right. And in the early days, you could make, that's when all the crazy money was made on Bitcoin. Uh, and now, you know, in the short term, the most that you'll make on your money, which is still crazy, is like, you know, two to four X in the next short period of time. That's an incredible return on investment. Don't get me wrong. But for those who are like sitting back trying to, you know, make 50x or 100x like they've seen in the headlines or on the social media posts, the way to do that is you have to get into the smaller cap, uh, riskier uh, cryptos that are under the guise or, or led by Bitcoin in terms of market cap, but they're not quite as big as Bitcoin yet. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I think so. I, I guess that that's around the mining, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about the farming. I know you described it earlier, but is there a simple yeah. for my for, actually it's for me for a simpler example or analogy you could use what what yeah. the concept of crypto farming is about? Yeah, so crypto farming, also known as yield farming, I would say uh, I would use a Warren Buffett analogy um, is probably the best way to go about that and. He talks about um, productive assets and non-productive assets. So a non-productive asset would be gold, a block of gold. You've got a $60,000 block of gold sitting here, and it's great. It's a store of value. It's, hard, it's tangible. You know, you can believe in it. It's got, it's got value, uh, and no one will argue that. There's even some scarcity that comes along with it. But that block of gold cannot create any more gold for you. It's non-productive in that regard. A farm, literally farmland, uh, is the comparison uh, that Buffett makes. And farmland has real estate. It's got equipment. It's got all kinds of different assets on it that uh, act as assets that can appreciate or be used as depre depreciation for taxes. But the main differential is that it has livestock and crops that you can sell for cash flow on top of the asset values that exist underlying underneath. And so you've got a productive asset in farmland. Well, the productive asset is more uh, attractive to a Warren Buffett type investor uh, than a block of gold. Now that doesn't mean that he doesn't own any gold or you shouldn't own any gold, but it needs to come into play when you think about your portfolio strategy. And so crypto farming or yield farming it's much like the farmland example. You can own Ethereum. It's great. You can own Bitcoin. You can own a primary coin, um, but it can't create by itself more Ethereum or more Bitcoin or more of that token that you own. Let's say you own uh, Ethereum. It's the largest uh, altcoin on the planet. Altcoin meaning anything besides Bitcoin. I think something like 68% of all other altcoins are built on top of Ethereum. So it's like programmable money is what we call it. Well, that Ethereum, again, isn't creating more Ethereum for you. It can go up and down in value just like a block of gold can. 
But you could take that Ethereum to a crypto or a yield farm, which again is just basically a decentralized bank that needs liquidity so that it can do transactions. Think, think like a foreign exchange desk. You show up in a foreign country before credit cards and digital money, right? And you're like, hey, I've got a hundred dollar bill, US dollars, and I need a hundred pesos or a hundred pounds or a hundred francs, right? Well, that foreign exchange desk would say, okay, I'll give you a hundred francs because I've got a stack of a hundred francs back here. I have liquidity in this native currency. Okay, great. Give me, I'll give you the US dollars, you give me the, the francs. Well, crypto farms are the same way. They need liquidity so that they can create transactions and earn transaction fees and lend out more Ethereum or lend out more BNB or lend out Avalanche or whatever the coin is. And then they're able to do business. And it's all in that financial lending and earning and yield arena. And so as a liquidity provider, which is what you are in a crypto or a yield farming scenario, you are putting your money into custody with them. And they're saying, hey, in return, we're going to pay you 0.25% a day or 0.4% a day or whatever. And that's just, you get to choose from a menu of different farms that have a particular annual percentage yield. And if it fits into your financial strategy, you invest, you invest there and take your daily rewards in your wallet. Oh, it's very cool. Thank you for your patience with me on that. I, I use the term sometimes ELI five, explain it to me like I'm five and you were able to explain it to me um, in my dense head a, a bit more about it. And, and the other thing I noted was uh, this concept of a store of value. I, I didn't, this is the second time I've heard that term in the last few tapings of the podcast. And I never realized it before, right? This whole concept of store of value, which, which is interesting uh, to me that, that, because um, I never heard that term before, but you had said it and, 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 it, and I'm glad you were able to, to kind of uh, bring that up during the conversation. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you some more general questions. Like how is decentralized finance change the life of an everyday person? How is it doing it today? And how do you see it doing it in the future? Okay. So I don't want to chase too many rabbits here, but it's, it's, um, we can, we could go down a crazy pathway. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a theory, uh, that I'll get to in a second, but, uh, so your first question is how can it change the life of just a normal investor? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Everyday person. How is yeah, this decentralized finance change? So, the thing about decentralized finance is that is its uh, accessibility. You know, like who doesn't want to own real estate, right? Who doesn't want to own a 200 door apartment complex that has, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue every month? Of course, anybody wants to own that and then get the tax benefits that come along with it. But there's a barrier to entry. You got to have financing. You got to have down payments. You got to have all the stuff, the financial leverage, if you will. With crypto, it's not that it's not the case. You know, if you've got a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, it doesn't matter. You can be invested in the next few minutes uh, in that asset class and be taking advantage and be taking advantage of the yield of a decentralized environment, which is, like I said, more democratized than your Wall Street banks. Wall Street banks, they're going to keep all the profits centralized at the top of their balance, you know, on their balance sheet, at the top of the totem pole. I mean, how much interest have you earned on your retail banking checking account lately, right? So, um, so 
decentralized finance simply put for the common man and woman is allows us to earn more money faster with smaller amounts of money, um, smaller required amounts of capital. So I think that's kind of the chief aspect. Obviously, there's a lot of other benefits that come along with it, but it really opens the door for the everyday person to start snowballing using the rule of 72, compound interest, the thing that we learned about in eighth grade math, um, it, it, the power the power of compound interest at our fingertips. So that's, I mean, that's really kind of the, the chief feature uh, rather than, you know, having to have massive down payments and, and getting into something that, um, or not being able to get into an asset class at all. So it's, it's a very approachable and attainable and accessible um, investment vehicle. Cool. And, and on top of that, what, what are some of the recommended crypto wealth building frameworks? How do people begin yeah. to jump in to investing? So the one I use is I call it the crypto flywheel method. Um, and the crypto flywheel method is in all transparency, just a conglomeration of things that I stole from other people who are smarter than me. Um, you mentioned the cash flow quadrants a while ago. Well, I, I, it's kind of an amalgamation of that and uh, Jim Collins, good to great leadership, business leadership book. And there's lots of the hedgehog principle and all this stuff. But when I got into crypto, I was like, okay, this is legit. This is real. This is the future. But you can go two ways, one of two ways. You can be a crypto slot machine gambler or you can be a crypto investor. And so I decided to treat my portfolio more like a business than a slot machine. And so I created this crypto flywheel method. And for your listeners, I think this is going to be very helpful. Um, there are three wealth building strategies inside the flywheel, the crypto flywheel method. And they are cash flow. Sounds familiar. Uh, appreciation. Also familiar and leverage, also familiar. All three of those are achievable inside the asset class of crypto, uh, crypto investing. There are also things that you can achieve in the other asset classes, everything from stocks to owning your own business to whole life insurance to real estate. But crypto gives you a velocity and an accessibility that the others do not give you. So um, I'll start with the top, which is cash flow. Most people don't realize that you can create cash flow with crypto investing. As a matter of fact, most of them start in the appreciation phase, which is just your buy and hold uh, part of your portfolio, which is meaningful. And you should have a buy and hold approach. Uh, but most people buy, hold, and hope. It's just like, again, pulling the crank on the slot machine. I hope I get lucky sevens. I hope this Dogecoin, you know, lightning strikes and I become a billionaire. Honestly, that's just not reality for 99% of people. And so instead, let's use the facilities and the utilities of crypto to our advantage to snowball uh, even small amounts of cash flow. And so we use DeFi as cash flowing instruments, and every single day we earn yield. So you might earn $50 a day on a certain amount of capital, okay? Well, what do I do with that $50? Every single day, I've got a decision to make. If I'm earning $50 a day, what, do I, what am I doing with that $50? Am I putting it into cash and let inflation eat it like moths in a closet? No, I need to reinvest it somewhere. So that's when I move that $50 down to the appreciation 
part of the flywheel and I say, okay, what is it that I believe in? What have, what do I understand? What has utility? What do I feel like is going to be here five years, 10 years from now? Bitcoin, Ethereum, Chainlink, Avalanche, Polygon. You know, I can list off all the things that I have 32 altcoins that I dollar cost average into. And so I use my cash flow part of my flywheel as basically a self-funding dollar cost average uh, instrument. And I move that cash flow down into the appreciation part of the flywheel. And then, of course, you have leverage, which is kind of like a graduate expert level thing, but it's where you use your existing equity or portfolio to go out and buy more cash flow. Um, and there's lots of ways to do that in the crypto space. But um, overall, the crypto flywheel hasn't failed me yet. Oh, that's great. And, and I want to kind of just dig a little deeper in terms of, so if someone today has $1,000 and they want to invest um, and they follow your flywheel method and they're going through, um, they, want to, they want to go down this investment road, is there a particular recommended uh, bank sort of, you know, because right now people will go to, they'll walk into a Wells Fargo, they'll walk into, uh, mm. into a, a Bank of America, whatever that is, right? Yes. But is there a particular... Great question. Uh, is it Coinbase? Is it what? Where would someone start that's reputable and they can make sure that their their transactions are secure? They could get their 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 investment in and out easily. Uh, what are some of the sites that are out there that that can help people do that? Well, I don't know if you realize what you're doing or not, but you actually are asking a very controversial and pro provocative question <laughs> because the year of 2022 was speckled with failed centralized exchanges who held people's funds, mismanaged their balance sheets, went bankrupt, and now all these people can't get their money back because it's tied up in bankruptcy court. So here's, this is an excellent question, and I've got a recommendation for everyone listening. Number one, you need to understand kind of the, the basic pecking order in terms of uh, facilities and tools uh, for accessing on-ramping and off-ramping fiat currency into crypto. Number one, you've got your central exchanges, you know, depending on which country you live in, you know, we're in the United States. So uh, I, I like Coinbase because they're regulated by the SEC. We know what their, their earnings reports are every quarter. We can see what they have in reserves. We know their health. And so there's a level of forced transparency. Whereas if you look back at December of 2022, and FTX, which was an offshore largest um, central exchange on the planet, uh, unregulated, unaccountable, and unchecked, millions of people lost millions of dollars because somebody at the top, again, in a centralized organization, keep in mind here, like there's no difference between Enron and FTX in, the, in, in terms of just central or centralized devious behavior by a few, a handful of people manipulating and taking advantage of, you know, thousands of customers. So central exchanges play a role in the circle of life, but they're like public restrooms. And I'm stealing this quote from Charles Hoskinson of, uh, of Cardano. Uh, he said one time that central exchanges are like public restrooms. They serve a purpose, but you don't want to live there. So I'm going to connect my bank account 
I'm going to send my money over. I'm going to buy my Bitcoin and I'm going to get out. And then the question is, well, where are we, where are we going with the Bitcoin? Where do we hold it? Right. What's the bank as you asked? And so uh, I have conveniently here on my desk, a box because I've got to ship it to one of my members. They won this from me. It's called a Ledger Nano X. I'm not affiliated with them. It's not my product. I'm not an affiliate, um, but it's a cold wallet storage device. Uh, you mentioned your friend lost access to it earlier. Um, and so uh, the, the key there is not my keys, not my crypto. So the keys, the private keys of crypto that you own, uh, it's kind of like the deed to your house. The, the, the private keys are your, the deed to your crypto. You want to be hosting those on blockchain with only your access to it. And so that's how why you use a cold storage wallet. The other wallet is called a hot wallet, and that's what we use. It's connected to the Internet all the time, hence the word hot. It's usually like a Google Chrome extension of some kind. And uh, I use one called MetaMask. I have other ones depending on the network you're on. But over, overall, I keep 98% of my crypto treasury on a cold wallet storage device. And the way those work is... The ultimate, it's the ultimate expression of self-reliance and self-sovereignty and trustless banking, not needing that intermediary. And the number one thing you got to do is you got to remember your 24-word key uh, security phrase in case you forget your password or whatever, your nine-digit um, uh, code. It's a physical device. Nobody can hack, hack into it, you know, virtually. Because the physical device has two buttons on it that you have to be able to push commands on. So if it burns down in a house fire, God forbid, or you lose the device, it's fine. As long as you have your recovery phrase, you just buy a new one um, and use your recovery phrase and you're back in action. So it's a pretty versatile way to do your own personal banking and personal treasury. Very interesting. Thank you for that. And and I think one of the last crypto-related questions I want to ask is, and I think we touched upon it a little bit throughout. We talked about kind of these failed markets and some of these pieces. What is your personal current outlook on the crypto market? And are there any up and coming crypto trends or yeah. currencies or coins that you're looking at, you have your eyes on? Yeah. So um, right now, as you and I sit here uh, recording this, the market has probably found its bottom, um, give or take 10%. We could see another leg down. But I would say historically, if someone invests in crypto right now, uh, no one's going to be calling them an idiot in a year or two um, because, you know, you're, you're buying Bitcoin at uh, this price and it's gone up two or three or four X uh, because of cycles. And if you look at cycles and you read how markets move in waves, we're pretty much at a really incredible market entry uh, right now. In terms of trends, you know, um, gosh, blockchain is going, it's going to permeate every major industry that we know. Um, I'm an investor in crazy stuff that you've never even thought of. In, in everyday life, like trucking and logistics. Um, I'm an investor in a coin there that's 
taking over the factoring services to save money on invoice factoring services for trucking companies. There's a million trucking companies in North America. It's a $3 trillion industry and blockchain's about to radically make it more profitable to operate. So I think that you're going to start seeing traditional industries like that be affected, like supply chain management, stuff like that. I think one of the more fun and, um, you know, for us 80s kids who grew up with an original Nintendo, the gaming industry is going to be a massive multi-trillion dollar industry in the coming years. Uh, play to earn video games, having video games that you own property inside of, you know, this metaverse idea where, I mean, imagine Fortnite. I, I, I never got to play Fortnite, um, but my kids do. And, you know, they have shops on that game, PlayStation, whoever owns Fortnite makes a killing, right? Because they're, they're buying skins for their characters and new weapons and all of these gadgets and whatnots. Well, imagine all of those in the form of an NFT that now not only do you own the character, literally own it, you have the private keys and the serial ownership of that digital asset, but you also own all the stuff that they wear and use in the game and that you, the game has its own currency and that currency has a U.S. dollar value. And it's, it's very Ready Player One, uh, if, if you're familiar with the book or the, or the, vid, or the movie. Um, it's going to be a kind of a self-autonomous environment where entire economies exist within games. And we already have shadows and preliminary versions of that. And I think it's a $20, $30 trillion industry in the next five years, possibly. So I'm heavy. Um, I'm long on, on crypto gaming coins right now. And I think it's going to be a huge trend. In terms of DeFi, man, hang on for dear life. Every 90 days, we see a new trend. Uh, the moment you think you're up to speed in crypto, you're behind. And so that's what me and my mastermind members, we try to stay on the cutting edge and keep our, our ears to the rail, if you will, uh, on the trends. Because even a year ago, um, things that were working in DeFi are working differently now. Um, and it's just important to pay attention. Very cool. Yeah, no, thank you for all this. This is all very insightful. And, and, and I do want to ask you a few more questions, but unrelated to crypto, because when I'm looking and researching, I always do this with my guests. I, I look at the background. I look at various, I look at the, the websites. I look at the LinkedIn's. I look at all these things. And I have a few, few questions for you that are unrelated to crypto, that, but I also found very interesting. So uh, can, you, can you tell us how you made that jump from working for someone to working for yourself? Because at some point you, you were working for an employer and I think there's a lot of people that listen that at some point would, would love to be able to make that jump, uh, but they're too risk adverse to, they're at a certain point in their life that not to do it. But for you, how did you make that jump? Well, I'm going to give an unfair answer um, to a lot of people because I think what I'm about to say won't necessarily resonate with a lot of people or, or everyone, but then I'll, I'll also speak to the, the rest of the crowd. For me, if I'm really honest, I was always an entrepreneur, um, but I, I, I had too much of an imposter syndrome to believe it. So I didn't feel like I, I measured up. I didn't feel like I had the skill set. 
Um, I didn't believe in myself enough. I didn't have the self-confidence it requires to go out on your own, if you will. And so that imposter syndrome is real. It's a real psychological effect that a lot of people suffer from in so, you know, unconsciously um, uh, or subconsciously. And that was a big deal for me. One day I just woke up basically. I mean, it was, it was quite literally almost an awakening where I was like, you know what? I am lying to myself and my creator. I am a sales guy. I am an entrepreneur. Um, and I'm doing my current employer and my team members and in a dis disservice by being here because I'm not my optimized self. I'm not my, the best version of me. Um, and I'm not making the world a better place in this regard. So, um, the way I did that practically is I just started side hustles. And I think that's one of the best ways to go about it for those who are risk averse is, Hey, look, you're, it's going to be really hard to do the Indiana Jones, you know, replace the golden monkey with the sandbag and not make the boulder kill you. It's going to be really hard to do that unless you develop some level of side hustle uh, and you acquire a skill that's marketable um, and a, a permits you to create more commerce, <laughs> more more commercial activity for you and your household. So that's what I started doing, man. I just started acquiring different digital marketing uh, and sales skills like copywriting and email marketing. I taught myself Facebook advertising and, uh, and SEO like I sold a, I started a blog and I sold it for several hundred thousand dollars. And I started, it was like a square, a free Squarespace site. It was nuts. Um, and it's just, you know, acquire the skills to pay the bills. And that's really kind of step number one. If somebody's listening and they're just like, I want to do my own thing and I don't know what to do, get a, get a skill. Cause once you have a skill, it kind of acts as a battering ram for new opportunities and it opens doors. That is very cool. No, thank you for that. I'm glad I'm asking these questions that are uncrypto related. Um, the second question is two more questions, I promise. Um, the next one I have is your D1 baseball career, which I'm fascinated by people that are at that level because people know what, what I'm referring to. But Division One college sports, in whether it's baseball, football, basketball, is you're at the top of the game, right, before you're going pro. These are the schools that are producing – uh, the top players in the world and whatever sport that is. Um, what lessons did you take away from playing D1 baseball and how have you applied that to business? Oh, well, no, uh, lesson number one, and this is a hundred years ago, it feels like when I played, but uh, there's always someone better than you are is the, the chief lesson I walked away with after four years of D1 baseball I grew up in a small town. I, I, I benefited from being the big fish in a little pond, and I grew up in football world. I played football, but, like, baseball was my thing. And, um, man, when not a lot of people care about baseball, you can shine like a star, uh, especially if you're performing. And so um, once I got to college, I quickly realized that the pond is now larger, and there's a lot more sharks in it than than I had back home. So – there's always someone better than you uh, in business, man. What that means is uh, hire them. <laughs> if they're better than you at a particular role, job, or skill, then get out of the way. You know, let them provide them a good income, provide them a vision for why they should work with you or your, or your company, and get out of the way and let them operate 
I would say that's probably my chief lesson that I learned. The other one is just, you know, um, my dad, again, taught me a long time. I was a catcher. Uh, if you could see me, you would not doubt that at all. I'm basically built like a, a classic catcher. Um, and I played catcher from the age of like six. So six, 15 solid years of my life, I was behind the plate, which is I'm, I'm paying the piper now from in terms of aches and pains. But I remember being eight years old out on the little league field and my dad was there. He was always there. Somehow he had, he had owned a business and uh, sold lumber and was like meeting truck drivers to deliver lumber and like all this stuff all the time. But he always seemed to be available for baseball practices, which is awesome. And he always was, uh, he's the reason why I have confidence period. Um, but I remember one day it was hot, um, in the South here and gosh, it felt like 110 degrees. I was wearing all the gear. I was tired and mad. We were doing batting practice forever. And I walked up to my coach who happened to be one of my neighbors who owns a saw sharpening shop, like, blade he sharpens saw blades for a living just blue collar guy named steve and i remember walking up to steve going coach i don't want to i don't want to catch anymore it's hot and he his eyebrow went up because he knew my dad was standing on the other side of the chain link fence my dad's not a he's not a hard man he wasn't a hard man he wasn't overbearing but he just said son come here and he told me he's like you never tell your coach that you want to quit put your shin guards back on and get behind the plate. Mm -hmm. And I just look back on that and go, wow, if I would not have put the shin guards back on, would I have played college baseball? Would I have been good enough at another position to make it? Doubtful, I think. Because uh, when I got to college, I met my wife. Now I have three beautiful daughters, business owner, enjoy investing, all this stuff. So like, Looking back on baseball is really interesting, and I appreciate that question because um, you can kind of see the breadcrumb trails of life. That's very cool. No, and, and the last question is somewhat related to what you just you said in the last couple of sentences. How do you balance uh, business and, and family, right? You have your wife, your three daughters, a number of pets. How, how do you balance it all? Because you're in so many different – you have so many different things going on. You're doing everything – successfully, including marriage and, and, and being a dad and being a financial dad. How do you balance that all out? I think it's, uh, I think it's your responsibility as a dad to get paid the maximum amount per hour of your time so that you can have more hours to spend with your family. Meaning, if you get paid $10 an hour versus $1,000 an hour, then you have to allocate a lot more hours uh, for work. And so going back to some of our previous conversation, acquiring more skills, becoming more, a more valuable version of you. I mean, unless you live in a socialistic society, until further notice, we are capitalists. And, um, you know, anything Ayn Rand has ever written, you know, it's you got to if you're a producer. Um, you can earn, and if you're if you can earn, and, and if you can create a scenario where you're maximize, you have maximum leverage for the time that you trade for money, then it allows you to not have to sweat it when it's time to go watch a junior high basketball game or uh, show up at a dance recital or take your 
16 year old daughter to find a used car for the first time. So um, I think that that's the responsibility of the dad is to earn the maximum amount per hour as possible. Very cool. No, thank you for all of this. I, I usually end the podcast with a summary recap and I'm equally intrigued by the crypto conversation and <laughs> your personal philosophy conversation. So I, I'm going to listen to this podcast back uh, several times as I'm working out and such. Um, th some of the things I took away, crypto farming, did not realize that term. So that was very interesting. And thank you for taking the time to dig in deeper with that for me. Um, Bit Bitcoin scarcity. I did not realize that. I did not realize that there was a finite number of coins mm. that are out there and available. Um, so I, I did not realize that existed. And the last thing was this concept of imposter syndrome, which was unrelated to the crypto. But I'm going to take that back. That's something to digest. That was kind of like something to, to think about. So thank you for all that. So, Josh, I want to give you the last word. Um, any final thoughts? And where can people find you? <clears throat> I would love for everyone to find me on my newsletter. Um, if you're, if you're, if you're crypto, <clears throat> excuse me, crypto curious, go to cryptoyall.com. <clears throat> it's free. All I need is your email address. We'll send you an email or two a week. All the latest news, uh, what I'm up to, all that good stuff, special trainings, etc. You know, inside access to certain things. So that's cryptoyall.com. Uh, if you're on LinkedIn, if you're a professional and you want just good, better content on your LinkedIn feed, come follow me, Josh Rhodes. Uh, I'm the guy talking about crypto on LinkedIn, and uh, I have a blast doing that. And that's really where I produce the most of, amount of my content outside of my email newsletter. So would love to have you there and uh, join me. And then lastly, if you are at a place where you just literally want to level up, you want to hire a coach or be a part of a community or have some level of crypto investing mentorship. I do a cohort uh, of a small select amount of people. Uh, if you want to apply for that, you can go to cryptoyall.co slash crypto farming. So there's no .com there. It's cryptoyall.co slash crypto farming and uh, apply. You and I'll jump on a phone call. I'll interview you, see if it's a good fit and go from there. Very cool. Well, Josh, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to our next one. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Th thanks, everyone, for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you, managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Mm -hmm.